Yeah, I think one interesting on the organisational side is, you know, again, when I kind of grew up, and you probably can't believe this, governments were the biggest innovator of technology. So thinking about DNA, thinking about automatic fingerprinting, think about automatic number plate recognition, all the innovation that came out of the US government, the UK government, Israeli government, was where consumers had no technology apart from maybe a telex at a wedding uh, in those days, and then we had facsimile and we all fought over it. And so, so 30 years ago, governments innovated, big business sort of followed slowly, and then consumers were completely devoid of any technology in their lives. Now, in the last 10 years because of this, it's totally reversed. Consumers control and shape the world of technology, and this is almost like an extension of our third arm. Welcome to the SAGE Summit South Africa's roundtable discussion on the future of work as part of the Invisible Admin SAGE podcast series. Listen in as Vincent Hoffman poses important questions to SAGE panelists Kimberly Axon and Kavio Kasun, including the global CEO Stephen Kelly, as well as thought leader experts such as Alison Jacobson and Sonia Blichner. Enjoy. So, uh, my name is Vincent um, and I help to run a design company called Inquisition and we've been very excited about our partnership with uh, Sage throughout this series. But instead of hearing me speak for well, much longer, I think I'm going to hand over to start with an introduction from my left, if that's okay, and we'll work to ours right. Uh, thanks, Vincent. Uh, my name is Kavir Kisun. I'm the finance director for Sage Africa and the Middle East. Hi, I'm Kimberly Axon, and I'm the people director for South Africa, Africa and Middle East, otherwise known as HR director. Um, hi, I'm Stephen Kelly, and I serve all our colleagues around the world as chief executive and they serve our customers and our partners. You've heard enough from me. Hi, I'm Sonia Blichner. I'm an independent consultant. I run a company called More Beyond. Hi everyone, I'm Alison Jacobson. Until very recently I was the group principal digital strategist at Dimension Data. Hi. Um, but now I'm an independent consultant working in digital strategy part of which obviously is around the topic today. Yeah, I'm super excited to, to hear the, the diversity of the, of the minds here because I think one of the, this topic in particular touches on so much that, that's really part of our everyday life now. The technology has been folded into almost everything we do. Um, one of the things I'm quite curious of is, um, I'm sure we're all millennials here. Hmm. I'm two millennials. <laughs> I think I'm the last millennial. I think, I might millennial. Be the last, I think I'm the last millennial. Um, the last year that we can be millennial, but it's, over our lifetime, this technology has quite changed quite a lot, and, and I wonder if we could reflect on that quickly, which is w what you've experienced in your lifetime that's changed by virtue of the fact that we've integrated technology, and you're all welcome to jump in whenever. So yeah. I'm not going to point at you. I must be the oldest here, sadly. <laughs> it's not something I'm proud of. So when I started um, out of college, coded, it, we were still in the world of punch cards. Can you believe that? You can't believe, you guys can't imagine this. So how you built a computer program, you used to basically design it, then code it into punch cards, and they had racks of punch cards, and they sent them away for someone to codify it, and then you got the results back. And the things in those days that drove you crazy, two things really. Uh, one is the elapsed time to do anything in terms of coding was 10 days, minimum. Two things drove you crazy, because these punch cards, sometimes you get all your punch cards and you go over to the, print, um, the dispatch area 
and sometimes you trip up and the punch cards will go everywhere. That's not a smart thing to do because you lost like a whole two days work. Second thing is you get the results back. This is like in the world of COBOL and BASIC and Fortran and those old languages. Um, and then they'd say, and this line, this program could be a thousand lines, and they'd say error in line three. And literally they didn't look at the other 997 lines. So, you know, that's, so now here we are. I've got four connected devices, and that's all happened in, what, 35 years. Staggering. Yeah, I mean, Stephen, that's a good example. From my um, experience, I remember um, punch cards and timesheets from my audit experience going out into the mines in some of the wonderful places in South Africa, like Rustenburg, Valcom, Middleburg, <clears throat> and going into the um, sort of mine offices at the shafts, and you always get these timesheets of these punch cards. And they're always um, filled with dust and they're dirty. It's really almost invisible to see the ink or the, the pencil that was written on. And you're trying to audit these things and try to match it back to the expense for the day. And that's really phenomenal in terms of the way in which the technology is innovated and the type of electronic self-service that we get today. Um, the innovation that's available through um, any one of our, our systems is incredible. Uh, we were just chatting outside Kavir and I and I was telling him a story my mother was an entrepreneur and she started a business from our garage and I remember um, the day that I thought she'd made it was the day that she got a photostat machine and there were three of us girls and we photostatted <laughs> our faces uh, and then we had a fax machine as well so we faxed the pictures of our faces to friends and I think if I look at that and how things have changed that thinking you've made it because you had a photostat machine a fax machine imagine receiving a love fax today so my mom always says, how, how does a fax work? Yeah. But she says it while talking on the phone to me, which is, you know. And uh, I think one of the interesting things is that what you're describing in terms of punch cards, obviously these technologies were still superior to what we had before, which was just yeah. us. So yeah. it sort of sends us on an exponential trajectory. So somehow it was still better, yeah. which is hard for us to imagine now. Yeah. But somehow it was still better. But we materialized these things into sort of giant machines. And they were always outside of us. So we were still here, and here were all the machines. And I think that's fundamentally about to shift. It's no longer going to be a sort of duality. We become the machines. So when you say, you know, are we all doomed? You'd have to define doomed. You're only doomed if you don't want to become a sort of cyborg. Or unleashed. Yeah, so that, I suppose that was the... Enhanced. That's what I'm quite excited yeah. about, is the, having a hopeful conversation. Because I think it's, it makes for a sexier headline to be to be down on the future of human capability, but it makes for a far more helpful headline to be very excited about what we can do with our with our artificially intelligent friends. Um, I couldn't have asked for a better segue because you discussed fax machines, and they're often used as the metaphor in Moore's Law's discussions. I'd heard there was a discussion earlier today about Moore's Law, which yeah. is um, does everyone know what Moore's Law is? Yeah. Just I'm sure you all do. Okay. Well, for our listeners' sake. Uh, exponential growth. Every year, presumably, we get doubly more processing or computing power. But what I'm quite excited about, and maybe it's something that we can all reflect on, is, is are we taking human beings along on the journey with Moore's Law? So in other words, is the capability of, our hum of humans doubling every year um, as technology grows ever more complex? And Sonia, I know you do quite a lot of work in the complexity and um, uncertainty space. Uh, are, are we creating the capabilities that allow people to deal with ever increasing amounts of uncertainty? And, and perhaps how can we start encouraging that thinking? I don't think that we are. I think there has been some improvement. You'll see that 
you know, many of the skills that they say that we'll need in the new, the fourth industrial revolution, as they call it, you know, you'll see things there like sense making, etc. But I, th I think many of our education um, organizations and just our corporates are still very much stuck in a very mechanistic way of thinking, uh, where, you know, I do a lot of work in narrative and, and some of the things that I see is we've kind of, we've, we're caught in these narratives where we see um, stability, certainty, predictability as good and normal and change and, you know, continuous, you know, the, the ubiquity of change as being abnormal somehow. And people keep trying to say we need to introduce more stability. And I don't think that we are really taking human beings along on that journey. And I think part of the problem is the, the more negative aspects of, of what you were saying is people seem to think that, that um, technology will replace them. And I think in some cases that is true. But I think what's more interesting is if we, we think about human augmenting or augmented te te technolo technology and what that would look like. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, Sorry. there are people sort of heavily invested in those spaces. So, for instance, one of Elon Musk's pet projects, and we now know to take those very seriously, is the neural mesh. Have you guys seen that? It's like a sort of headset that's supposed to enhance brain capability so that we can actually be smarter in order to work better with our technology. But for me, the question when you say, are we taking, peop are are we taking people along, who's we? Because in South Africa, I think we've got a major problem. And in other parts of the world, we've got major problems. And then in other places, certain countries, I think that they have uh, a much better sort of disposition and they're developing capabilities. But we know that in South Africa, sort of statistically speaking, we're not even taking people along at a sort of basic literacy and numeracy level. So when we start to talk about sense making and cognitive flexibility, it's, uh, it seems to me that that would be wonderful, but certainly not something that's on the agenda. I think it's not a one-size-fits-all answer. If, if I look at business, big business, they're in the rearview mirror. If I look at a generational gap, it's widening. Uh, if I look at a country-to-country -country gap, some countries are ahead of it. But the reality is, you talk about the millennials, but the next generation are kind of leading it. So we've got to catch up because, you know, otherwise it's a white-knuckle ride. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts on, on that particular subject? Because I think we've, we've touched on this idea of millennials now, and I want to pursue that further. Kim, you and I chatted briefly about this idea of the changing nature of millennials' expectations at work, and, and maybe we can move, move the conversation there. I think also for me, so we launched last year diversity and inclusion um, in the African and Middle East space specifically, and this conversation and the thread that we're looking at right now, it's so important for me that we don't exclude groups. So if I think of introducing a new HR system into a business. What is the biggest challenge? It's not the, the younger generations in that business. They'll adapt quickly. Um, they'll probably figure their way, figure their, themselves out around the system. You won't even have to train them. Um, but in my head, I picture a few colleagues who are potentially older, um, who have a mental block to not even try. And I think that's what the important thing for me of bringing people along is to not intimidate. Um, and to, to still show that, and, and this came up in our podcast of my father has retired, but he's now consulting. So he's retired in the very conventional sense, but he was retired for about an hour um, before he was consulting. There is a generation that still has so much to share with us. Um, so I think, you know, as technology advances, 
we have to make sure that we include everyone, but we also have to make sure that we don't exclude and that we don't lose hugely valuable insights um, from an older generation and wisdom that we can't possibly have. But what's interesting for me in terms of that prospect of losing that wisdom is we do it all the time. So, and I'm sure you have the experience in your own business, but people leave businesses on a sort of daily, hourly basis and with them goes the IP. And anything that you talk about, in it, certainly in my experience, an exit interview isn't really going to get to the point. And whatever they have uh, concretized into documentation in your knowledge repository mm. is completely, uh, I wouldn't say irrelevant, but really not the point in terms of capturing tacit knowledge and wisdom. <coughs> and so organizationally, we have so far, we are so far away from having solved for that. So then genera generationally, also a very interesting challenge because we, if, if we believe that you gain wisdom through lived experience, you're absolutely right, mm. but it goes and we're not, uh, what, uh, is there a better way that we could be sort of traversing uh, and bridging that divide? And, and if we can't do it in organizations, I don't know how we do it in society. I think, um, so from my view, organizations continually, we talk about organizations needing to adjust and to adapt to changing technology in order to survive. I think that principle also applies to individuals. As an individual, as a, as a finance profession, um, I, I find it's relevant for me to, to find new ways to remain relevant to the organization and to what I'm trying to do in my function. And I think as technology comes in, as new individuals, millennials or Gen Z comes in, um, those individuals that are, as you say, set in their ways of work or resistant to change, need to continue to adapt themselves and make themselves relevant to the organization um, because organizations will look to continually drive high performance and at, at a point in time uh, it is relevant it is it is valuable to organizations to bring new thinkers into the organization so they can continue to evolve yeah i think one interesting on the organizational side is you know again when i kind of grew up and you probably can't believe this governments were the biggest innovator of technology. So thinking about DNA, thinking about automatic fingerprinting, think about automatic number plate recognition, all the innovation that came out of the US government, UK government, Israeli government, was way ahead. Consumers had no technology apart from maybe a telex at a wedding uh, in those days. And then we had facsimile and we all fought over it. And so, so 30 years ago, governments innovated, big business sort of followed slowly, and then consumers were completely devoid of any technology in their lives. Now, in the last 10 years because of this, it's totally reversed. Consumers control and shape the world of technology. And this is almost like an extension of our third arm. And governments are the laggard. And actually, big businesses are probably still in the slow lane. So I think the really good point of it, if organizations, because organizations are only the, the reality of the individuals that work for them, if they're kind of in the slow lane while a lot of their millennials are in the fast lane and there's different lanes according to generation of appetite to change, then the responsibility of an organization is to wake up and represent the people they serve, which is ultimately customers, partners, and, and their people who make them up as the, so, the individuals. So, I mean, as you've just said, sort of, it's one thing when your own employees are sort of racing ahead with an expectation that you can't match in That's terms great. of your appetite or capability, but much, much uh, more frightening, or maybe equally so, is when your customers yeah. are beating you at the race. Yeah. And sort of, Absolutely. who moved my customer? 
yeah. is, I think, a real issue today because the pace of that change is very difficult to match when you are a large bureaucratic organization, particularly, and I'm sure we can talk to this, hierarchical, slow decision-making, etc., yeah. um, etc. Et so highly governed and governed on, against principles of efficiency and scale and stability when in fact what we experience in the world is the exact opposite. So designing for failure is what I think I see in a lot of organizations. It's a systems failure. Yeah. The context has shifted. The organizations, largely speaking, have not. And, and, and yeah. we talk about, you know, is this doom, etc. I mean, I don't know. We're very innovative as a species, so hopefully we, we, we get a grip on it or we do something uh, or we go off planet and start again. But I think that we're about to, things are about to get really wild. Because if you're on an exponential curve, I think we're at the very early part of that curve at the moment. Yeah. We think things are moving fast and you can't keep up. Every time I, you know, two years, I get a, that's slow still. Yeah. Why must I get a new thing every two years? I'm bored now. And again, I'm two millennials. What's it like for my, you know, I have an 18 month old child who sadly, and I tried not to, but is iPad addicted yeah. because she sees us doing it. She can't speak, but she can mm. scroll. Yeah. Mm. I have the reverse where I don't. I haven't let my child touch technology, but it's probably going to be a, to his disadvantage. Well, yeah. because he's going to turn six and go to school and be expected to have an iPad. So I, I don't think. But you must not use it at home then, right? In front of him. Mm, I don't. Okay. Well, I'm, I mean, I, I admire you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I kind of say, no, no, you must go and read that book. I'm just going to play on my phone. Or send me an email. Send, send, send me an email when you're done. No, it's uh, it's. I'm, I'm just very excited. I'm also, I mean, we're at a tipping point now with this pivotal uh, moment for our species. I think this is probably the broader conversation, which is so exciting to me, yeah. where we're potentially going to have to develop things like robotic ethics. Uh, we had a chat with Kriti Sharma from the, the SAGE team in London, who spoke very excitedly about um, the rise of, of chatbots. And, and if I look about human augmentation, I think it's such an exciting time to be alive now that we've got yeah. these potentially uh, intelligent friends. I wouldn't mind having Stephen Hawking's at my call beside me every day to make smarter decisions because boy that would be great if I could have a chatbot Stephen um, but but I, I mean the problem though is when, the problem is yeah. when your chatbot gets bored of you I haven't thought and about would that. rather speak to other chatbots who are far more connected far smarter and uh, you know I will design them not to be so will you? and I will make sure that <laughs> that's part of, that's part of my f the, the f isn't who was the, the famous inventor of the robotics law was it Asimov yeah no. Asimov there's three laws of robotics yeah first do no harm I mean, uh, first, don't ignore me. You know that was science fiction, right? Well, yeah. it's not science fiction anymore. It's all real time. It's happening. But, Fascinating. It's easy thing to write down, not so easy to sort of, you know. It, it is true, but practice. I mean, are, are, are we excited about I mean, yeah. this idea yeah. of, of potentially being augmented by uh, our friends? Um, yeah, and I don't know if you guys. I think for me, what excites me is if I think of, of people, and especially if I think of entrepreneurs and growing up in a family with an entrepreneur, knowing that our customers our clients, our business partners are entrepreneurs. If we can save them time with that technology so that they have more of a work-life balance, absolutely. Because what do entrepreneurs spend time doing? If it's spending time face-to-face -face with customers, um, that's great. But what are they doing at night at home? They're doing all the admin that we've spoken about today that we'd like to, to remove. So I think that for me, there's anxiety as a mother about technology, but there's huge excitement about what we can do 
um, for working moms out there. You know, mm. if we could turn that around so that a working mom isn't spending three hours every evening um, on, on basic admin that a system could do for you. Or driving. Yeah. Right? So yeah, it's absolutely. all going to be solved for, but, you know, the point is, will we have working moms or working anybody? Or, or working people in a very different framework. Well, so, yeah, what, what will that work But I think, like? you know, I guess there's two hats. One is we collectively seem very excited about the opportunity it creates for entrepreneurs and they're so vital to Africa's success. Um, and things like returning mums, uh, working, just fundamentally it means technology is the slave of the entrepreneur, but totally in a frictionless world, money in, money out from your customers. You know, it just makes, and everything run from either the palm of your hand or whatever device you've got attached to your glasses or whatever it is. From, I think, the wider sort of societal um, concepts, I think you raise an interesting point around responsibility. And I think, you know, I think we'd all probably around this panel say this is the most exciting time ever. You know, I'm 55 years old. I've never been more excited about technology than I am as I sit here today. And I grew up in the world of mainframes. However, you know, there is another angle about how, how what is the respect? It almost like it takes social media love social media, it's changed the world, it's democratized owning, it holds presidents to account. Well, you could have guessed that 10 years ago. However, the responsibility around social media that probably needs to be taught in schools is how to use it wisely, what impact it has around, you know, the celebrity culture, body image, all these sort of things that have a downside impact on society. And sadly, I don't think collectively, speaking on behalf of governments, they've actually invested in the responsibility culture of how does this change the world? How can you use it wisely for the betterment? And how can it bring everybody on that journey? And, and there's massive, you know, I talk about it in 20 seconds, but it's massive topics. So probably there's lots of PhDs going on about. Yeah, I'm quite interested in human-machine interaction. I think that's probably something that we all spend most of the rest of our lives really thinking about quite hard, which is how do we in, engage and interact with machines? Uh, just back to what Kriti and I were, were discussing on the podcast, one of the things that I was quite excited about and in a quick anecdote, um, Debbie, my accountant, um, I often think about her when, when I was chatting about Peg, um, yeah. the, I guess the chatbot that will help me. Yeah. Um, for everyone who doesn't know, Peg is a really cool chatbot that effectively allows you to capture receipts really easily. And for people like me, uh, when I go and play golf and it's a business golf uh, lunch and I forget to capture that business receipt, boy, am I in trouble from, with Debbie. And, and I, Kriti and I chatted quite, at quite length because I wanted to know where Debbie fits in. Um, because Debbie and I go way back, and I was quite curious about that. And I was quite excited to hear that there is an ethical design principle around the idea that, eth that Debbie will always have a role, because she's fundamentally the sense maker. Mm. I'm simply just doing capturing. That routine task has gone away. Um, Alison, you and I have chatted about this idea of being quite excited about routine tasks going away. Uh, what do you think we'll be doing with all of that time? I, mean, I can't say. Damn it, I was hoping for you to look at your crystal ball and tell me. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it, it, it's uh, you know, hopefully it, we move up and it becomes more about sort of art and yeah. craft and less about food and shelter, but the, it's, it's unknowable. And what we see in terms of uh, an approach sort of ethically or societally is, is some kind of uh, knee-jerk and sort of protectionism where yeah. we see instead of uh, embracing the fact that it is happening, so whether we're excited or not, the trajectory is clear. No, no one actually cares, you know, what I or any of us, it, the trajectory is clear. It's going to make people more money. It's yeah. going to be slightly more convenient. It might shave a second of whatever I'm doing and anything that does that, I want it. I want it. And yeah. 
basically we see cases again in South Africa where we're seeing government funding going into things that will create jobs for good reason but in denial of what's actually happening. So you could potentially be more efficient and manufacture more at lower cost yep. and be globally competitive and have a manufacturing export if you embraced certain technologies. And instead we see funding going into the denial of those technologies in favor of job creation for, in many senses, very, very, very good reason, but in the long term, maybe less so. And so when I talked about, but you know, will there be working moms? Because will any of us be working? Again, when you look at the conversation around the universal basic income, yeah. where very, very, very clever people are saying, look, the writing on the wall is clear, and we will all be out of work as we currently understand work. What will we be doing? No idea. But it's not going to be what we today call work. And so experiments are already afoot in places like, uh, is it Finland or Norway? Mm. Finland. Scandinavia where they have uh, taken, correct me if I'm wrong, 200 families and given them a monthly basic income to see what will happen. Will they stop working? Will they get lazy? Will it inspire them because they've now got a bit more sort of breathing room to go and do something which is innovative? And basically, again, we don't know. It's unknowable until you immerse yourself into that space. And I think there are other parts of the world looking to explore that. Now, when people start to explore such a radical thing to the extent that it's institutionalized governmentally, I think things are moving very quickly. Yeah. Very, very quickly. Yeah, I think the only variable is how long will it take? Because again, when I was growing up, we only had two, two TV channels. Can you believe that? And they're black and white. But there were even then programs about what the impact of computers would do. And everybody said, you'll have all your time will be leisure time. How could we put, and there's all these um, sociologists and psychologists. Now we sit here, what, 45 years later, and yeah, it's radically different from what it was before, but we're still having similar debates. It's and then, it, looks, it looks deceptive until yeah, it goes like this. Yeah, then it goes like that. The other thing is I, I'd always expect to be surprised. So again, 15 years ago, if you could say the essence of all communication for young and old people is now based on an old technology called SMS, you would have said we're crazy. If you had, a, you mentioned Nokia, 15 years ago, dominant player. So who used SMS? to communicate with people. Clunky, you say, no, I want to talk to someone. Now, no one uses this for the, the primary mechanism of the phone. Everything's done, but so you, you would never have predicted that. It came out like, from, and everybody now is in, incredibly dexterous with their thumbs. Absolutely, it's fascinating that uh, Slack, which is a yeah, really Slack, useful Slack product. messaging tool, um, and I know there's an integration. Yeah. Not, that was not intended, like, I just, <laughs> <laughs> We love Slack. That's I just not, I read, it, I read about it yesterday. Um, but it was very interesting because it feels very much like internet uh, RSE. Uh, I don't know if anyone here used RSE, uh, effectively a chat uh, tool. We've gone so far yet we've kept the essence of it, which is talking to people across geographies, um, which I'm quite excited about, you know, this, this idea of dispersed distributed teams. Um, so the things that, that, that we've all talked about this idea of, uh, of companies being able to innovate. And I'm always curious because I guess, I guess it's my own interest in, in designing workplaces that inspire and allow for career creativity, um, which ultimately inspires innovation. But how do we start creating workplaces that can, in fact, inspire uh, young people to, and, and old people alike uh, to be more innovative, to be more creative? Because I think we will have to change the way that we work, regardless if we can't look at a crystal ball and guess which is easy. Um, we will need to change the way that we work too. So does anyone have any thoughts on, on, on how we need to change? 
Well, I know that at Sage we've definitely, uh, and I think this has happened globally. We've looked at taking offices down. You know, looking at open plan uh, a lot more. Um, for me, I don't sit in an executive office. I sit with my team. I'm on the floor. I know what's happening. It's the same in the sales floor. Our VPs of sales sit with their teams, uh, and I think there's so much to be said for that energy of sitting with a team versus sitting you know, in a glass box separated from your team. So I know for us that's a, a big move. Um, and I think if you look at working remotely, it's, it's common practice at Sage. Um, yeah. And I think it's becoming more and more so. But I think there is there's another part, you know, do we want to work from home? I mean, I've done it and I found it quite difficult. There's something, for some personality types where we enjoy being social and being surrounded by people. I don't necessarily want to sit at home with a laptop um, or in a coffee shop in the corner. I quite enjoy coming to work and being inspired by other people and hearing their news face to face. So I think it's a dilemma. I think taking down the old fashioned offices are the first step, uh, but how that suits everyone Hmm. Yeah, I'm not quite excited about these experiments. Yeah, I think it's it's experimental, but there are different, obviously, types of people, different roles. So I think if you are a Mm -hmm. software developer, it may be more difficult than if you're an HR person or a people person. (coughs) But what I would encourage, which is what we're seeing more commonly across the board, is instead of just sitting with your team, is to start building cross-functional teams so yeah. that you have yeah. HR people sitting with marketing people and yeah. opera, et cetera, and institutionalizing that into some kind of structure which has inputs and outputs rather than desk hopping or I'm visiting you because that seems like fun. Yeah, yeah. So look, I, I'm in HR. I do um, quite a lot of work to make sure that you don't only see me when there's bad news because hmm. I think that that is kind of part of the role. So I do every Friday, if not more, I try and do a walk around. I know Kibir spends a lot of time on the sales floor um, and the closer we can get um, to having each team kind of next door to the team that supports them the most the better for us yeah Kim I think um, on your point of mobility or working um, offline but almost online is inevitable I don't Mm -hmm. think businesses are going to scale at the pace needed or they desire to by continuously taking up office space or looking to even do that I think it's just innovation will enable a more rapid pace of scaling so that's inevitable for me Um, the ability for us to stay connected that um, allows me to manage people um, across geographies so that's that's not really an issue for me Um, I think it's important that we continue to drive diversity across um, our workforce in terms of the way in which we we recruit individuals Mm -hmm. And in terms of, and recruitment and diversity is not just about sort of the, the demographics or the ethnic background, but it's also about the skill set um, that people bring. I think when you bring diverse skill sets together, you create um, a far more sort of robust thinking environment where people continuously challenge the status quo. Um, so that's, you know, that's my view on. Well, it, well it matches some really significant research around this idea of that a diverse workforce is a more productive and oh, healthy yeah. workforce. Absolutely. A difference, particularly in the innovation space, allows us to create really useful solutions for the world. Yeah. Um, well, the, the bottom line is if you're not representing the community you serve yeah. or the customers, you don't know what you're talking about. And 
you know, whether it's women, whether all these things around inclusion. Diversity, I think they're two different things. One is diversity and absolute economic data unequivocally off the scale. I think for women it's 50% more productive in terms of uh, profitability of companies around, um, around both race, gender, all these sort of things, sexuality, it kind of goes up to above 35%. Then there's a separate thing I think which is fundamentally slightly different is around inclusion. You, you don't want to have cliques, you don't, you've got to have that sense of inclusion. I think you've got to make the workplace fun. And you've got to, you know, you've got to, because fundamentally humans are social animals. Everybody, and if you don't, if you have separation, you know, there's ultimately mental health consequences. So I think it's fundamental to responsibility of employers, whatever that model looks like, whether it's entrepreneurs or whether it's in a loosely coupled federation or whether it's a sort of formal company structure, there's absolutely a huge responsibility to think about what's the best dynamic of um, inclusion, being creating a workplace which is fun, dynamic. You know, in some place like Atlanta, we have tree houses. Some places we don't have any office. I don't have an office. Um, and I think you're right. You you typically do project work now. So teams from multifunctional teams come together for a period of time. They go off and they diverse, but also they take the IP into different areas of the business. Um, so I, I'd, I'd say this is kind of uncharted waters for many companies. One thing actually I did before this, I've been here two and a half years, I was the Chief Operating Officer of the UK Government. So civil servants are 400,000 people, so quite a big employer. Um, and we had a project called the Workplace of the Future and we worked with um, EY and all the sort of innovative companies around this and did loads of research about creating the ideal sort of pod type of environment, bringing people together, making it a fun environment. But even we did some good stuff. But I think we're right at the early stages of understanding this. We've got a way, way, way to go. I think something that's really interesting that I'm seeing is that many of the um, emerging management models are starting to learn from natural systems. Mm. We're starting to think more in terms of ecologies. And just a couple of, think of thoughts, you know, I think if you think about an ecosystem, if you lose diversity, you lose your resilience. So I always, you know, I always contrast like a, um, a place like the Kruger National Park with a sheep farm. When a drought hits, we know that the Kruger will survive because there's biodiversity. The sheep farm, not so much. So I think part of the problem that we've got with diversity is that we framed it as a problem that we need to solve, rather as seeing it as a gift. Because if we don't have a requisite diversity, then we're not able to, to be resilient, to be adaptive. And I think the interesting thing with um, innovation is that most innovation happens by accident. It's serendipitous. Yeah. So for me, it's a, a, an interesting question is how do we create environments where we increase the likelihood of diverse people running into each other and having these serendipitous conversations that spark innovation. But then I think following on to that, one of the things that I see in organizations that stifles innovation is the way that we measure. The targets we set, the things we choose to measure because we can ask people to innovate or to be creative until we're blue in the face. But if we measure the wrong things, we're forcing them into a system that basically works against what we're trying to, to achieve. So I think this idea of really looking at what we choose to measure is, a, is something that's missed in many organizations. I really like that idea of the sheep, the sheep mm -hmm. ecosystem. If you had to imagine, you had to ask employees continuously, you must innovate. Mm -hmm. And the system doesn't change. No innovation will take place. Ah. It's like saying to people, I really want you to go off and collaborate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
but, but this notion of a systems change and an authentic systems change, so the diversity and inclusion until it affects you and you're the big boss and it means, that, well, you know, you have to give up power mm. or give up your seat. So it's an interesting one when authentically an organization embraces that or um, in contrast, they put beanbags and paint the but no one's sitting on the beanbags because they're all too stuck in the old reward and recognition system chasing whatever it target. A, a cargo cult. It's I mean, a cargo cult. And it actually is very, very sad and it's a, it's a haunted place, you know, sort of empty yeah. fun rooms. So, and I agree, I mean, fun is the best thing to have. Fun. By definition. Yeah. But how do you sort of inculcate that and how do you put it into an organization rather than sort of bringing it and have everybody bring their own version of it. So there's something just about the diversity and inclusion being allowed emergently to create whatever fun looks like for those groups of individuals. And I've seen lots of different expressions of that, different based on, again, if you're t archetypically a programmer versus a salesperson, they would have very different ideas of fun in my experience. Alison, I think also for me, and Kavir, you were talking about recruitment in terms of diversity and inclusion, and I don't think that's where we start, because we already have a diverse workforce. Um, we just need to include them and make sure that they're comfortable to express their diversity. Uh, so that was my, you know, last year I had to think about kicking this off, and I really thought about it and had to be really introspective, and how comfortable am I with these topics, religion, um, race, gender, and there were other topics I hadn't even considered that colleagues raised of actually I'm from the LBGT community and how are you going to include me something I hadn't even thought of so I think the first step is actually how do we find the diversity that we already have and let it flourish um, and is that with beanbags <laughs> painted wall probably and I've, I've worked in advertising I've worked in oil and gas and I work at Sage I think Sage is, is probably a really nice mix of those two very different industries. In advertising, you don't need to create that space because you're working with creative people. They'll create it for you. You could put them in an empty room. They don't need a beanbag. Um, you know, oil and gas, very different. You, offices, big name on the door. Uh, so how do we create, like you're saying, a genuine, authentic space that's true? And it's not true to a company. It actually has to be true to that specific function. Yep. For an HR team to flourish and feel inspired and creative, our space is going to look very different from our product delivery team. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a totally different environment. So, so, so yeah, we're not homogenous, but I think that instead of letting creativity flourish, it would be about how do you remove obstacles. And unearth it. That's what I'm saying. Sweet because I mean, all, all of the people who may want to be more included, mm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's these notions, and I know we're very used to it because we all come from this, but it's this notion of we, we need to manage for this. How, sure. how do we manage this better? When in fact, I think the opposite is true. So uh, there's more letting go. Yeah, yeah. Go. I, I didn't think of it at all as how to manage it. <clears throat> I was so excited by just the fact that we're going to start talking about it because talking about it, and we had some really challenging um messy complex conversations just in the kickoff in South Africa if you think of if you just mention that topic in a South African context and I, I again you know you go in with your own bias I expected uh, the, the global push is really females in technology in South Africa um, we certainly don't have an issue in terms of our female workforce and um, we're majority uh, females in the South African space in SAGE 
So we had other areas of focus and we really let the colleagues drive that. So we kind of kicked it off in this very open session and it was it was really, it got messy in a really good way. So I think for me, it, it doesn't feel like something that needs to be managed. It almost feels like something that needs to be opened, uh, opening Pandora's box and yeah. seeing what happens. And we've seen amazing things. We've, we've looked at really simple things like pregnancy parking, you know, which I know has been, been done in, in big companies overseas of, is it fair for a woman in her third trimester to be on the other side of the parking lot and, you know, carry that, laptop bag and all of that there are small things we can do to cater um, for people that would just make that world so very different I remember being in my third trimester and we didn't have a lift we had I had three flights of stairs to get up to and if you've ever been heavily pregnant that is it's a bad start to the day so there are tiny little things that I don't think a leadership group should drive I think you open the box and you let the diverse groups drive it for you and, and just point you in the right directions. So, so what on that, that's right, Alice, I'm going to have to call it time there. We, I know we are short on time, so thank you so much. I really in, enjoyed the conversation. I hope you guys really enjoy, enjoyed the conversation. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Invisible Admin podcast series. We hope you enjoyed the in-depth look at the future of work Sage and other experts have provided and apply the insights gathered in your own business going forward. Until next time.